Okay, this randomly came to mind as favorite science nerd drop in season two. This is a small one, but I know it's one Mike will like. When the second season of Star Trek Discovery came to an end earlier this year, I asked Dr. James T. Keen what his favorite science drop was from the season. In the episode, The Red Angel, where they go to this cold planet, Asaf 4, where apparently it's inhospitable to life outside of the Starfleet facility on the surface. And they're going to go down there, they're going to put Michael in a situation where she's going to be exposed to the atmosphere and will die. But the thing that will kill her is the combination of the carbon monoxide atmosphere and perchlorate dust. Turns out I had also made a note of that mention of perchlorate dust because it reminded me of a friend who's actually studied perchlorates on another planet, Mars. So today, I'm interviewing Caltech planetary science graduate student Ellen Leesk about perchlorates, her work on remote sensing of other worlds, and planetary geology. I'm Mike Wall, and you're listening to Strange New Worlds, a science and Star Trek podcast. So, you're a planetary geologist. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> Which is an amazing profession and sort of a niche kind of thing to be interested in. So I'm wondering if you could tell me how you got here. I know that you have a, a sort of unique journey um, thinking about the things beneath us, but you also think about the things above us. So how did you decide that you wanted to think about the things beneath us but above us? <laughs> Well, I was definitely one of those kids who always had a rock collection growing up and oh, okay. <laughs> never quite grew out of it. And whenever I would uh, go on camping trips with girl guides or anything like that, the things that usually stuck in my head were the really awesome rock formations that I'd see. Now, you said girl guides, which I'm assuming is like Girl Scouts, but for Canada? Ah, yes, yes, <laughs> yes, that, that's what it is. And so I got a lot of exposure to, to going being outside and camping through that, and then realized that I, that was something that, A, had practical job applications. So I decided to study geology in undergrad. So did that and uh, ended up working. I had an internship at Shell that I ended, so I ended up working in as a geologist for a couple of years after that. But I'd realized that throughout my degree, whenever I had a choice in any of the classes to pick a final project, every single time picked a planetary geology project. So for my volcanism class, my final paper was on the volcanoes of Io, mm -hmm. or the moon of Jupiter. And uh, for my tectonics class, my final paper was on, I think it was Enceladus, looking at the uh, tiger stripes. Right, the places where the plumes are coming out. Yeah, yeah. Um, so it, every single time I had any choice, like I did that for, for my earth physics class, I picked Mercury, like I, and then I was like, when I, when I was working as a, like in the industry, I was like, okay, if I want to go back and get a degree, because I really realized that the more interesting jobs need, needed at least a master's. So I was like, okay, I'm going to go back and what do I really, what do I have enough passion about to study? I'm like, yeah, the one thing that's always intriguing is planetary geology. So, so you get to have boots on the ground and look into the stars at the same time. So what is it about outer space that, that draws you to that? Because, you know, the rocks that you can really examine up close are here on earth, but you want to actually study the rocks out there. What, what is there some kind of allure 
that explains why you kept on choosing other places in the solar system as your as your projects? I think it's the that's uh, always the draw of the unknown. You know, it's part of part of human curiosity is you always want to explore what hasn't been explored before. And what's really neat about geology on other planets is that you can use the things that you see on Earth to explain what might be happening in, instead of in rocks, they might be happening in ice that's so hard that it behaves like a rock. And sometimes it makes things a little different, and sometimes it makes things similar, but being able to draw those, those similarities between things is really fun too. I love that. Wanting to explore the unknown, but also bring it closer to Earth and to understand it through the knowledge that we've gained about our own planet. And that's very Star Trekian, I'd say, uh, you know, the, that allure of the unknown and trying to explore something that nobody else has thought about or seen. And so, Ellen, what is your experience with Star Trek? Well, <laughs> I had enough nerdy things that I did in high school that I purposefully didn't get into Star Trek <laughs> because I knew that I would get into it. And I was like still a little insecure at that point and didn't want to do that. And then had sort of just, you know, not really been into it. And then until I had an office mate, Mike, oh. Oh, me? <laughs> <laughs> um, who persuaded me to, to give it a try. <laughs> mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And so we've watched Star Trek Discovery together. Uh, we watched a lot of the first season when I was still here at Caltech as a grad student, as your office mate. Um, and then the second season came out earlier this year, and there was an episode called The Red Angel, where the crew of the Discovery travels to this hidden research facility on a very inhospitable world. And as they're scanning the surface of this world, Spock notes that it has wildly fluctuating temperatures, a carbon monoxide atmosphere, and a surface laced with perchlorate dust. And this was a very nerdy nerd drop. Um, perchlorate dust. It's a bunch of mumbo-jumbo that sounds like it's just pieced together scientific terms to the untrained ear, but it's actually a real thing. And it's something that you kind of study, right? To some extent, yeah. Perchlorates, it's, it's actually, there's not a mineral term. It's a, it's a chemical term. It just means like hyperoxidized chlorine and is very unstable. And so we've only ever found perchlorate on Earth in places like very small amounts in like on the edges of things in the Atacama Desert. So really, 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 really dry. Otherwise, this thing will not form. But there's also some evidence from some of the landers and rovers that we've seen something that looks like this on Mars. Wow. Okay. So from a chemical perspective, you said that it's a highly oxidized form of chlorine. So it's, it's a chemical that's made of chlorine and oxygen then? Yeah. So most of the perchlorates, you can have different cations that are associated with it. So you have like sodium perchlorates or magnesium perchlorates. And usually the perchlorate is like a ClO4, CLO4. Uh, mo molecule. Yeah. Okay. So it's like a, a magnesium plus a ClO4, mm -hmm. and that is your magnesium perchlorate. Or you could have a calcium plus yeah. ClO4. And they're often hydrated to some extent. So they have, um, they have water incorporated into the mineral formula. Okay. So a perchlorate is generally found in nature as the ClO4. It's almost never found it's in It's almost nature. never found in nature. Yeah. So it's, it's as, a, as a solid. Yeah. So this I think it's something that can be created in atmospheres, which you might know oh, more about okay. there, Mike. But um... Contrary to popular belief, I don't actually know everything that there is to know. Not even about planetary atmospheres, one of my supposed areas of expertise. 
But I did what any scientist would do. I took a look at a couple of scientific papers on the subject of perchlorate formation. And indeed, perchlorate can be formed in the atmosphere. So planets tend to emit chlorine into their atmospheres, mainly through volcanoes, which burp out some really nasty stuff, including hydrogen chloride, or HCl. To make perchlorate, which remember is one chlorine atom connected to four oxygen atoms, you need to pop off that hydrogen from HCl and then throw in some oxygens. The first task is easily accomplished with a little bit of ultraviolet radiation from the sun, and the second is most quickly accomplished through reactions between that lone chlorine atom and ozone. This works here on Earth, where we've got plenty of oxygen and ozone in our atmosphere. And you can totally explain the perchlorate that Ellen mentioned in the Atacama Desert by this kind of atmospheric chemistry. But Mars doesn't have that much oxygen or ozone in its atmosphere, because its atmosphere is mostly made of carbon dioxide. And so, Ever since perchlorate was discovered on Mars, people have been trying to think of clever ways to make it on a dry, unoxygenated world. Here's one that was proposed by my friend Dr. Brandy Carrier at JPL. Irradiate some rocks on Mars. Mars rocks contain halite. That's just the fancy geologist's name for table salt, which is one part sodium, one part chlorine. Rocks on Mars also have silica, chemical formula SiO2, and metal oxides, with chemical formulas like Fe2O3. Notice all of the O's in there. Bombard these rocks with enough radiation, and you might be able to pop off enough oxygens to make perchlorate, ClO4. Other suggestions have included things like irradiating Mars's ice caps, and Here's a wild one, using electrostatic discharges that result from the massive dust storms that envelop Mars every so often. Now, interestingly, ESOF 4 from Star Trek Discovery has a carbon monoxide atmosphere. We don't have any planets in our solar system with a mostly carbon monoxide atmosphere. But one way to theoretically get a carbon monoxide atmosphere is to start out with a lot of CO2, like Mars has, and heavily irradiate that CO2. You pop off some of the O's from CO2, which leaves CO, carbon monoxide, and the O's get together and create oxygen and ozone. Now, we know that there isn't much oxygen on ESOF 4 because Burnham was shown gasping for breath. So where did all that oxygen go? Well, it could have reacted over time with minerals in the surface of the planet, minerals that contained chlorine, and hence turned into high concentrations of perchlorate. That's my pet theory, my headcanon for ESOF-4. Anyway, back to Mars, I'd say that the actual formation mechanism of perchlorate on Mars is still a hot topic in planetary science, partially because we still don't know exactly how much perchlorate there is on the red planet. That's what we're trying to figure out. So we can, we've only got 
like we've only got a few places where we've landed rovers or landers to be able to have the capability to find this. And so they think that the Phoenix lander seemed to see it and the uh, Curiosity rover seems to see it as well. So perhaps it is more common there, and which would make sense because Mars is super dry, just like the Atacama. But a couple of years ago, there were also some uh, papers that thought they may have seen some of the signatures of perchlorates from orbital data. But that turns out not quite to be true. <laughs> and that's because of work that you've done. Yeah. So tell me about how you detect certain chemicals or certain minerals on another world, both in the case of a rover, which is like a robotic geologist, and in the case of an orbiter. Like, what are, what are the techniques that you would use to try to find something like a perchlorate? Right. So if we just go really quickly through how you, how you detect minerals from orbit, if you were looking at a picture of a rock, how would you tell it apart from another rock? Are you asking me? I'm asking you. <laughs> <yeah>. <laughs> okay. Well, um, not all rocks are the same. Yeah. Um, What's the first thing you'd notice if you looked at a, at a photo? I would say the color. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> so, I'm, so, I'm such a good geologist. <laughs> <laughs> so, yeah, that's, that's basically like the first thing you notice when you look at a rock and you're, you're identifying it. If you're not, I mean, if you're colorblind, that won't work. But there's patterns and things like that. But it's one of the first things your eye notices is color. And the color that you see in different rocks is caused by the, the minerals. The things that are making up that rock have different chemical bonds. And those chemical bonds absorb light at different wavelengths. Whether it's due to electrons that are moving around or possibly just the bonds themselves that are vibrating. And so these can absorb lots of different types of energies. And so the ones that are at the wavelengths you can see are how we perceive color. But there's a lot more information if you go up to different wavelengths. So longer or shorter wavelengths, you can get a lot of information about bonds and things like that that your eye can't see. So it's basically like color on steroids. Mm -hmm. And that's how you tell apart different minerals from, from basically a, a photo. I love uh, that explanation. Yeah. That's great. Okay. And so there was this report that they found perchlorates from the sorts of colors or wavelengths of light that they were seeing from orbit. But then... Uh, yeah. So there were a couple of uh, papers that had suggested they found those wavelengths that we were expecting to see for perchlorates. But they were kind of marginal. Um, they sort of seemed like they were wasn't quite sure whether they were there or not. And so we decided to use machine learning to try and find a lot more pixels that looked just like those to try and see whether this is real or not. And we got really excited at first because we found things that looked like that with really strong absorb, what looked like absorptions, which is where the wavelengths of light are absorbed, all over Mars. And we were like, oh man, did we just find like large amounts of perchlorate everywhere? Does that mean that like liquid water could exist at these really low temperatures? Because that's what perchlorate is like, like salt that you put on the roads when it's wet and it's icy, um, but even more. And so we got really excited about that. And then we started looking through it and realized that there was something wrong with the data processing pipeline that was creating these things that looked exactly like perchlorate, but weren't. Oh, interesting. So what are they instead? Oh, uh, you had a technical explanation here. <laughs> so when you take a, a picture, basically using all these different wavelengths, your picture has to look through the atmosphere, right? And so when you're looking through the atmosphere, you get lots of all the molecules that make up the atmosphere will also get in the way and they'll have lots of absorption. So you can see the atmosphere very clearly. And usually the atmosphere is much stronger than the surface because if there's a lot more atmosphere you're going through and you're seeing the surface once. And so it happens to be that the wavelengths that perchlorate absorbs at are right on the edges of the wavelengths where the carbon dioxide that makes up Mars's atmosphere is. And so what we're pretty sure what is going on is 
from our, our data, they're a little bit spiky, and so you have to filter it to be able to work with it properly. And the filter works really, really well elsewhere and depends on how much variability is there between different pixels. But when you have this big carbon dioxide atmospheric absorption, there's a huge amount of variability. So spikes that would otherwise be thrown out because they're not real are kept in there and then smoothed to look like perchlorate absorptions. Ah, interesting. So the atmosphere is, is messing up the color that is being seen from the surface because it has to tra- that light has to travel through the atmosphere. The, the reason that it looks like that is it's twofold. It's the, uh, the spikes, just noise in the data. So like, if you know, if you look at a picture and sometimes there'll be like a, you know, really bright spot here because something's happened to the sensor. Because this thing's pretty old. It's been sitting out in space for a while. <laughs> it's, got some, it's got some issues. Um, and so it just it happens to be that it's, it's not actually recording anything real at the surface. It's taking a random spike in the data noise and then turning it into something that looks real. And your new analysis has basically shown that when people have said they've detected perchlorates from space-based observatories, it may not actually be true. So there may be less perchlorate on Mars than we thought. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And so, I mean, which makes sense because the the rovers and landers that have detected perchlorate um, have been in the less than like half a weight percent. And so that's not very much, like getting mixed into a soil. And so you wouldn't actually see that from orbit um, mm. because it would be masked out by all of the other minerals and the dust and everything else that's possibly there. And so you'd have to have it very concentrated to be able to see it from orbit. Uh, you'd have to have like a big outcrop of perchlorate. Mm-hmm. And we've never seen that on Earth and we've never seen it on Mars. And so it makes sense that it's it's not necessarily real in the remote sensing data either. Interesting. And so we can just assume now that the USS Discovery sensors are a little bit more advanced than, what was the spacecraft that was doing this for Mars? Uh, there's two of them. Okay. Um, there's a French one, Omega, and uh, a U- US one called CRISM okay. are the two sensors. So CRISM and Omega, you know, they, they aren't able to detect the, the tiny halfway percent of perchlorate, but, you know, given a few hundred years, uh, we'll probably have the capability to detect the small amounts of perchlorate in, in the dust of other worlds. Maybe. Maybe. Yeah. <laughs> um, and so in this episode, the perchlorate played the minor role of being a, a toxin to humans. And, and is that true? Yeah. I mean, did you ever do the thing in high school where you put a gummy bear with potassium perchlorate and it explodes? I can't say that I did. Oh, I think I had a teacher that was retiring, so I think he didn't care. <laughs> that was a little dangerous, but... Yeah, no, okay. yeah, the last day of my grade 12 chemistry class, we took some potassium perchlorate and threw some gummy bears in, and it explodes. So perchlorate is very unstable and very energetic. And so I wouldn't really want to eat something that explodes. I mean, I'm not sure exactly, you know, I don't, I'm not a biologist. I don't know exactly what perchlorate would do to you. But <laughs> I'm not sure I want to try. But a gummy bear is essentially like gelatinous. It's like sugar. It's sugar. It's exactly. sugar. Yeah. And, and, you know, to a first approximation, we're also sugar-ish. Yeah. You know, yeah. we've got carbon, hydrogen, and oxygen in our bodies and yeah. compounds of that. And so is a gummy bear. It's not alive, but it's yeah, organic yeah. material. Yeah. So that's a really interesting experiment because, yeah, perchlorate was shown to basically eat away or erode somebody's skin. And I guess if there was in high enough concentrations, it, it would actually be very damaging to one's body. Yeah, well, I mean, um, the the highly oxidizing agent that you're probably most familiar with is uh, hydrogen peroxide, right? And you can put that on your skin and you know that it, you know, it'll, it reacts with your skin and it'll bubble and turn and it's like that on steroids again. Oh, okay. So it's like much more, it's more oxidizing than a, than a simple um, hydrogen peroxide. 
Thank you for telling me about perchlorates on Mars and how one might detect them and how your work has shown that some of the previous detections may actually not be detections and, and how uh, perchlorates are actually quite toxic and uh, are only found in large concentrations on very dry worlds. Now, I want to return to Earth, though, because a lot of your research is about our planet, and you go on really fun away missions to different parts of our world to study the rocks there. And I know that one of your most exciting missions was all the way to Oman, which mm -hmm. is a country on the, I think, southeastern tip of the Arabian Peninsula. Mm -hmm. And so what kind of scientific questions drew you all the way to Oman? So Oman is pretty cool because they have the biggest ophiolite that's exposed at the surface. And an ophiolite <laughs> is, it actually comes with a Greek word for snake, um, because it's green rocks, like serpentines. Okay. And so that's, that's where the mineral comes from. But uh, what, it, what it is, is when a piece of the ocean floor has been squished up onto the surface. And the composition of the ocean floor on Earth is much more similar to what Mars's surface looks like, because our, our, our granite mountains are not something you see on Mars. Mm. And I could get into the details for that, but that's an igneous petrology class that I don't need to, <laughs> to get into. <laughs> yeah, spare me that. Um, but was, yeah. So basically you were there in Oman because it resembled Mars. Exactly. Oh, and so cool. it's one of the best places on Earth where that's exposed at the surface and you don't have plants everywhere because it's in the <laughs> desert. And so it's kind of hard to explore something that looks like Mars if it's covered with plants because we know Mars is not covered with plants. <laughs> mm -hmm. Cool. And, and so you were studying the rocks there that resembled the rocks on Mars, and you brought a very special kind of instrument there, right? Yeah. Um, so basically, we brought a miniature version of Chrism or Omega, thanks to our, our uh, postdoc who was working in the lab, got to fit into a backpack. Whoa. And so you could trek around with it and then set it up on a special tripod and scan, scan a picture. This reminds me of the, the tricorders that they have in Star Trek, the little miniature devices that they can have in their hands and like immediately identify the chemical composition of anything around them. It's that, but backpack-sized. But yep. Yeah, no, and actually, um, this uh, data set, went, a few years ago, they came up with an algorithm to, to go through the data and try and identify different minerals using it, and they tried to call it tricorder. Really? They did, and they were <laughs> they got in trouble. <laughs> <laughs> and so it's now called tetracorder. <laughs> what was that? Tetracorder. Tetracorder. As in oh, one more than tricorder. <laughs> That's amazing. It's out of the USGS. I yeah. love that. Okay. <laughs> um, yeah, and I guess, you know, given a few hundred more years, instead of wearing them on our backs, we'll, uh, we'll have them in our hands. Yeah. One last question. Uh, you know, since you're a geologist and you go and you encounter these very exotic environments. What do you think is maybe the Star Trekiest thing that has ever happened to you on one of your geo-adventures? How would you define Star Trekiest? Maybe a time that you really felt like you were on an alien world or exploring the final frontier. Hmm. Um, that's a good question. I think that the alien world parts are definitely some of the volcanic environments. Those, those don't feel like... Like they're on Earth, you're on Earth at all sometimes. Um, so if you're like walking across a lava field, like, oh, obviously cool. <laughs> um, and sometimes like it, it just looks, it looks very otherworldly. Um, and like the life that can exist there is, is kind of different. The adaptations that it's made are not the ones that you necessarily encounter every day. Mm -hmm. Very cool. Yeah. 
Well, Alan, thank you for joining me on Strange New Worlds. It's great to finally have you on the podcast. And good luck with the rest of your thesis. I know you're getting close to... Thank you. Thank you. Thanks for inviting me. It's fun to, fun to chat. Yeah, absolutely. I learned a lot about perchlorates and about the tetracorder device. <laughs> what a fun story. I didn't know that at all. That's great. I hope you enjoyed my conversation with Ellen Leesk. She's a planetary geologist at Caltech and is finishing up her PhD thesis this summer, so go Ellen! You got this. Now, perchlorates were depicted in Star Trek Discovery as an extraordinarily deadly substance, which is true for the most part, especially for us human beings. But perchlorates can also be life-giving to certain kinds of bacteria. These Hardy, microscopic creatures use perchlorate as their oxidant. Essentially, they're breathing this stuff. And since, as Ellen mentioned, perchlorates tend to lower the freezing point of water such that it can remain liquid at really cold temperatures, one is naturally drawn to ask, could there be anything living in perchlorate brines on Mars? And if not Mars, Maybe Esau 4? I guess we'll just have to go back and find out. Until next time, see you out there.